Uh, welcome here, Gabriel. It's Thank a true much. pleasure to, to have you on the show. And I remember the first time I met you, you were actually in Peltorion and uh, your uh, cousin Daniel had invited you and you showed off your fur hat robot. And I think everyone was really, really impressed with how we can actually have all these kind of facial expressions already working today in a robot like that. And I think that's especially true in, in a situation that we have today in, in Corona uh, times where everyone is lacking uh, the type of social interactions you have physically, but not really getting when you work remotely all the time. Um, so yeah, it's, I think it's especially interesting of, of being able to have this kind of social interactions in these times. Wouldn't you agree, uh, Gabriel? Yeah, exactly. I think that's what we all miss in all these Zoom meetings we're having. Yeah. Uh, we feel that there's something missing. Mm. And I think that's the motivation for Furhat that you were talking about is mm. sort of how can we create a physical uh, interaction, a mm. physical meeting with a machine mm. in the same way we have physical meeting with, with each other, a face-to-face mm. -face meeting. Yeah. And everyone knows intuitively that we prefer that. Yeah, yeah. We wouldn't go out and have a beer on a Friday yeah. over Zoom, but yeah. uh, we want to meet face-to-face. We actually -face. tried that once, but it didn't really work. Okay. Well. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, I can understand that. Uh, and actually, then it's the same thing with a machine, that mm. having an interaction with a machine that has a physical presence in mm. and you have a face-to-face -face interaction is something very different from having it with either just a voice that you have, like in a smart speaker, mm. or a virtual avatar on, on a screen something different and you as a professor as well i mean um, you you have phd students you have courses you have to teach etc and i guess that it's all being done remotely these days uh, yeah and it's zoom based right or? yeah exactly and uh, i guess it's the same thing there that uh, sort of it's very hard especially if you have many people you're talking to also to mm. to keep track of is is are people falling asleep or yeah. what's what's happening here you can't read uh, their no exactly yeah. and if we have a physical meeting we can very quickly glance and, and see what's happening and uh, people are reacting to what you're saying and so on. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, it's the same thing there. Of course, it's, it's so it's Have you ever thought about using Furhat in some way for your teaching or for PhD students <laughs> or whatnot? So is it yeah, I mean, for, for education, I think uh, that's obviously a use case, but mm -hmm. also there is an interesting use case of, so of, of robots in general, this telepresence, which mm -hmm. means that you, have if we had a if I was able to come here, mm. I could put fur hat right. here, and then I could sit at home. You should have brought the fur hat here. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> wow, I didn't think about that. But okay. uh, so I could have fur hat sitting here, <laughs> and then I could sit at my home, right. and then I could connect to the fur hat, and right. I whatever I say would come through fur hat lips, and uh, wherever Does it I work look in more or less real time, so you could actually. Yeah, sit. exactly. You can do. You can add the lip sync. Uh, so you process. Yeah, so you process the speech, and you add uh, lip sync uh, mm -hmm. in real time on top of the speech. Uh, and and if I look at you, Farhat would look at you, uh, oh, yeah. and so on. Uh, so I I would sort of to me it would be like sitting here, mm. and for you it would be like me sitting here. Uh, I think we need to have a part two of this uh, whole uh, interview, <laughs> yeah. but we will invite Farhat. Yeah, <laughs> that would be that super. Would be cool. very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it would be awesome. And I guess a lot of people are now wondering, you know, who is Gabriel and what is Farhat and what, do you, what are you all speaking about? But perhaps we should start simply, you know, who yeah. is Gabriel? How would you describe your background and your personality? Yeah, so uh, right now I'm uh, having, uh, I'm, I'm working both as a professor at KTH. I'm working on conversational systems, systems that can interact through conversation with people. 
uh, and human-robot interaction um, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, I'm uh, a co-founder and, and chief scientist at uh, Furhat Robotics that mm. is developing this Furhat robot that we have been talking about. Uh, and and well, how would you describe a conversational system? So that's a system that tries to uh, have a conversation with, with humans in the same way that we interact with each other, uh, or similar to that, uh, yeah. at least. Um, so, uh, which could be anything. It could be more of a chatbot that is more sort of social interaction, but it could also be something talking and discussing about uh, teaching you a new language, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, which one do you think are the most famous conversational cases out there now? I've seen a couple ordering pizza uh, yeah, like exactly, fun yeah. on YouTube. <coughs> I mean which one do you regard <coughs> as the one we should all find on YouTube after this? <laughs> I don't know. You can you can watch the videos of Farhat, of, of, of course, but That's I think good. the one that people are mostly used to is uh, having a smart speaker or a voice assistant. Yeah, right. And it's not so much of a conversation, of course. You, you uh, ask it a question and you get an answer and yeah. then nothing more happens. So... Mm. So that's generation one that that's we experienced. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But of course, the interesting things happens when you start to build on that and, and start to ask the next thing and so on. Uh, so uh, historically, maybe the most Im- famous conversational system was ELISA. Right. Mm. Uh, that uh, was built in the 60s and uh, where you, uh, Joseph Weizenbaum was, was the creator who tried to emulate uh, a, a psychotherapist uh, by... Very simple means. Mm. Yeah. I, mean, I think Eliza is a very interesting topic of discussion, and uh, perhaps we should just yes, briefly yes. skim over it to yeah. okay. not jump too much back and forth, but then get back a bit about your background. Oh, we, well. we do this first and go to Eliza second because this is a good topic. Yeah, but I hate going back and forth. Okay, <laughs> you decide. It's okay. Uh, so should we just uh, have a very quick introduction to what Eliza is because it's one of the most, I think, famous AI systems mm-hmm. and one of the first ones as well. In the 60s, and, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but basically they tried to build like a therapist. And, yeah. and it was not, you know, machine learning based at all, completely programmed. Yeah. And the only thing it did was more or less throw back the same question that, or the thing you said back as, as a question again. Yeah. Right. And actually, it's quite an interesting uh, sort of story behind it because it goes back to the Turing test. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so Alan Turing had this idea of the, uh, he asked himself, what is intelligence? And the answer was that if you have a chat mm-hmm. with someone uh, over a terminal and you can't know whether it's a human or a computer, right. uh, you have managed to create an intelligence. And actually, the reason why Zimbabwe created ELISA was to prove that Alan Turing was wrong. Uh, in the sense that you can create a machine <laughs> which has a conversation without intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's 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 <laughs> <laughs> so if you do it in a smart way. So he, he just sort of, if you said, um, I have problems with my mother, it would just pick out mother and say, tell me more about your mother. Yeah. And you could actually have a conversation. And, and it turned out that people really liked Eliza. And uh, his, there are sort of anecdotes of his secretary really wanting to to continue this conversation with Eliza and, and not being disturbed because it's it was such an interesting conversation. Yeah. Either it says uh, something about humans or it's a good says listener. <laughs> a good listener. Yeah, yeah, yeah listener. exactly. Or it said something about how psychologists work today. Yes. <laughs> I, had a, I had a many jokes on this. Oh, it sounds like a politician. I don't yeah. know. How yeah. do, I mean, it's called yeah. something not, special. Not a straight answer. Just another question. 
It's called something like Rogerian type of yeah, psychology. Exactly. Rogerian. Or something. It's a special style of uh, where yeah. you basically just echo back what you hear. <laughs> <laughs> rephrase it a bit. Well, whatever works. But the Turing test, I think it's certainly something we, sh- we should talk yeah. more about and if this is a good test or not. Mm-hmm. But before we do that, perhaps uh, just speaking a bit more, you have been in KTH for quite some time, right? Yeah, about 20 years now. Yeah. And what did you do before that? I think you actually went to Linköping as well, yeah, which is exactly. my university so, as well. When okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. When I, did my I, uh, I studied cognitive science there. So that's, mm-hmm. uh, for those who don't know, it's, it's a mix of computer science and AI and uh, psychology and linguistics. So mm-hmm. trying to bridge these things and uh, trying to understand both how human cognition works and how we can mm-hmm. build cognition in, mm-hmm. in machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, And cognition, can, can you try to describe that? What, what, are, what do you mean with cognition? I guess that's similar to what we say when, when we mean intelligence, but mm. in psychology, cognition refers to like perception, uh, memory, decision making. So, so it's sort of a psychological term for these kind of more sort of higher level function, not emotions perhaps, yeah. but, but rather sort of the more uh, reasoning and, reasoning, and yeah. sort of the logical side of humans. IBM tried to use that they work with cognitive intelligence or something. Instead yeah, of, I don't know. <laughs> we had Patrick Kelchip on the IBM and yeah, the, yeah. I guess yeah. it's branding as well. Yeah. To find their yeah. own uh, hype word. You could say thinking. Yeah. Thinking. <laughs> thinking is yeah. better. Yeah. But more human type of thinking or Yeah. Or I guess some people talk about animal cognition as well. Okay. Uh, so uh, I mean animals have perception and memory and so on. Uh, I, I, they don't have language in the same way that we have. And language is a very important aspect of cognition, of course. Mm. So that's why why I become sort of interested in this this area of sort of how how um, language works yeah. but but in academia to use the term cognition w- which faculties do you belong to where this comes very natural to say cognition instead of intelligence i mean i, I think either i think it's mainly in psychology yeah. or in the field of cognitive science where you try to bridge that yeah. with language and with ai and and computer science okay uh, that's where we you would use the term cognition yeah. And I know you're like the president of one of the ACL special interest groups, etc. So you've been uh, very um, successful in, in the academic sector here. Uh, but h- how would you describe your field of research right now uh, in KTH? Yeah, so uh, as I said, I work on conversational system, but that's a very sort of broad topic. So I'm trying to pinpoint certain things that I think are mostly most interesting when mm. it comes to conversational systems so uh, one of the things is partly how the role of of the face in the conversation and how we use that to signal different things so that's where the robot comes in mm. and also of course yeah. uh, and one of the aspects that i find very interesting is um, for example uh, turn taking in conversation and we can model that so we're uh, moving to a dialogue system and yeah exactly so In a chatbot, turn-taking is not an issue because you type what you want to say and mm. you hit uh, enter, enter and uh, <laughs> the turn passes to the other person. But in a conversation, it doesn't work like that. We don't have an enter key. So, you uh, wish you had an enter, enter key <laughs> for me. He, he wants an enter key for me. Yeah. Being able to interrupt and not to interrupt is a, is a function I wish we had a button for. But uh, Yeah, yeah. No, so, sometimes you actually do this. In, if, if you have troubles uh, sort of arguing back and forth, you say, okay, I have the orange. Now I I'm holding the orange, yeah, yeah, so yes. I'm the one. These techniques, <laughs> techniques yeah. actually in, in yeah. uh, that can be used even. Uh, but but that typically is not something we have. So so we we somehow managed to pass the turn in conversation 
in a in a very uh, sophisticated subtle way mm. with extreme precise timing also mm. so if you look at human human conversation you find that the the sort of modal the, the mean response time mm. Uh, from one person to the next is around 200 millisecond. Yeah. So it's really, it really quick. That's different between people. Though, it's, it's, it's a difference between <laughs> cultures. I was thinking if there's a gene signal, if this function is broken, can it be? Yes. <laughs> no, there, there are a lot of differences. And if you look at children, there's a difference and so on. But but I, I, I'm just talking about some kind of, yeah, kind of average. Of uh, and it really means that Partly we have to understand when we can do this because maybe you just make a pause mm. and have to think about what to say. I can't just jump in and talk. I understand yeah. that you want more time. Uh, but a computer doesn't understand that today. So it will just barge in and, and uh, interrupt you. Mm. Uh, if I, for example, talk to my uh, smart speaker and I say, uh, can you play? And then I can't think of the name of the song. It will interrupt me and say, sorry, I don't understand that. Right. Uh, and a human wouldn't do that. So that's what we want to see. Can we build a system that can understand when it's appropriate to, to, to take the turn mm. and not? And can it do it with this kind of precise timing that, uh, that humans can achieve? And that includes both listening to the audio or text, but also watching the face? In the yeah, so the face plays a role. So yeah. sometimes we include the face and sometimes not. But, but it's partly the words we are saying, mm. but it's partly the tone of our voice. Right. So mm. the, the melody uh, of our yes, voice. So if we have like a more flat pitch, mm. it typically signals that we want to continue talking. Mm. Whereas if we have a rising pitch or a falling Just pitch, minutes. we might pass the turn. Yeah. And then if you add the face, then uh, if I'm uh, thinking about what to say, I typically look down a bit mm. to, to think what to say. And then when I'm finished, I look, look up at you. Right. So we combine all these different things. And that's mm. where machine learning comes in. Yeah. Because then you can use machine learning to try to identify combine these things and, and identify mul that. Multimodal kind of Yeah, fashion. exactly. Exactly. Yeah, very interesting field of research, I think, that there's a lot of need for, for improving the current, current, current qual quality, I would say, in a lot yeah. of AI systems. Right? Yeah. So, and um, what was the idea and what's the background to starting up and founding a company? Uh, yeah, so we, um, we started back in, I think, uh, it's like eight years or so uh, as a research project in we wanted to look at how you can um, have multi-party interaction uh, with these systems. So you multi-party means it means that uh, what we have now. So it's, it's not multi, just multi-party. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's not several just two people. So, but because typically in a conversational system, you have the system and one user. So it's a two-party conversation. Uh, and uh, what, what if you want to have several people talking to the system? So imagine a system at a train station and you want to be, buy tickets and you are two people talking to the system at the same time, uh, how would the system manage that conversation? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, uh, and again, the turn-taking becomes more complex and everything becomes more complex. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the things is that it's very hard to have a multi-party interaction um, with um, an animated agent on a display because it's very hard to know who the agent is addressing uh, uh, if it if it looks straight into the camera, so to speak, it will everyone will feel like they are being addressed. Yes. It's like a newsreader on TV in the sofa where, where everyone in the living room thinks, oh, they're looking at me. <laughs> and, um, but you don't have that with a robot or a person. I, I, you know who I'm looking at. Uh, so uh, we wanted to see, can you build, if, if you take this avatar in 3D, 
maybe you can have this kind of multi-party interaction in a much more natural way with a, with a, with an uh, agent. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's somewhere there where the idea came to try to take the animated agent and project it uh, on a 3D face. Uh, so uh, first we projected it on the front, but then the agent can't move the head. So you have to project it from the back. Uh, so it can actually move the head. Uh, Do and we have neck. a video of this going on or is it something we can put up? Um, um, so, uh, so that clearly became extremely effective once you did that because you could have this eye contact mm. where it really feels, ooh, it's looking at me. Mm. Uh, and you have the physical presence uh, that we were talking about in the beginning. So you have uh, this feeling of, of uh, talking to someone in the same room, which is very hard to explain why that is so different, but it's just this very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it's a really smart idea. I remember this when the first time I saw this, it, it is uh, really fascinating and sometimes a bit scary as well to to see the facial expressions from the robot and the eye contact and everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's and of course, since it's animated, uh, <coughs> if you compare it to other robots, it's partly much more expressive and yes. detailed, yeah. but it's also a cheaper solution and uh, more, much more flexible. So you can project different faces mm-hmm. uh, and different animations. And should it look like a man or a woman or a child or a creature or... And if I'm not uh, incorrect, you can basically upload your own like persona to it and... The yeah, you can do that. Uh, to some, as you can see here, the, the, uh, the mask is actually detachable. So mm-hmm. to some, uh, for me, it works fairly well to project my face on it and it mm-hmm. looks kind of like me. But if the shape doesn't fit too well, it mm. will not really look like you. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you can actually put... So we were actually asked at one point to make a replica of Mikkel Danberg oh. uh, <laughs> for some event. Uh, the, the politician. In, in yeah, exactly, yeah. in, in Visby. Mm. Uh, so, uh, uh, so we did that. So we, <laughs> we, we made a replica mask of, of him mm-hmm. and an animation. And, um, and, and did you... M- could you both do it like, a, like an AI, but also you can... How do, how, what is it called? Telematically yet another place and, and use the... That you could... So, so for this telepresence thing, that would be an excellent thing. Of yeah, exactly. In that case, it was, not, it, it was not... We didn't have time to develop any sort of replicate <laughs> him as a person, sort of, more his appearance. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very flexible uh, solution in that way that you can project different faces and so on. Mm-hmm. And that was the... Sort of once we did that and we displayed it at uh, the London Science Museum because there was an exhibition about robot projects around Europe mm-hmm. and uh, our robot was the only one you could talk to. So uh, oh, okay. you could hear the voice of the robot all over the <laughs> museum <laughs> and we got BBC and a lot of different, sort of everyone was very interested in this. The, so, the robot that did the most in some yeah, ways. Yeah, in some sense it, it drew most attention. So, <laughs> so that's where people started to ask, so sort of, oh, can you buy this? And no, we are just researchers, you can't buy it. But oh, yeah. That's where the idea came to maybe we should make a product out of this uh, because it seems like people are very interested in this. So how is that? Do you have a product ready for sale today? Or yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. so we have, uh, this is um, uh, like a, a platform, you could say. Mm-hmm. So it's it doesn't come really with intelligence mm-hmm. sort of for a specific application built in, mm-hmm. but uh, it's a platform on, on which you can build different applications. Mm-hmm. 
so we have a lot of researchers uh, or research institutes in bigger companies. We sold actually one of the co- first customers was Disney uh, really? Research. Yeah. So uh, they bought one and uh, experimenting with how you could do human human robot interaction. Uh, so like Disney World kind of applications or what? Or yeah, that's so they actually have a whole department doing oh. research on human robot interaction. I yeah. think especially for for Disney World. Uh-huh. Uh, and, Super uh, cool. Uh, yeah, and and they uh, of course those robots are mostly teleoperated and they are not autonomous. Mm. Um, but of course, they are interested in how to make it more autonomous. Uh, mm. And where do we see the the first uh, live applications or use cases, uh, w- w- or what has been so mm. far when you have sold it? Or? Uh, so the more sort of actual sort of applications, uh, we had one collaboration with Deutsche Bahn. So we had Farhat at uh, Berlin train station and Tokyo train station and Frankfurt airport. Uh, answering questions like uh, where is my gate or uh, is my flight delayed or mm-hmm. where can I find the bathroom and so on um, and uh, so, so that that was uh, it didn't sort of or haven't yet at least sort of scaled up from that but it was really cool to see that it, we could use it live and yes. I think they were quite uh, it turned out to work quite well uh, yeah, I think that's an awesome and interesting application could we just at least briefly go a bit into the mm. technical yes. part of that. And if we take, you know, this example of um, you have a social robot, it's some kind of physical presence as well, and you can go up to it. I've seen, I think, some video for that in the mm. uh, Berlin train station or whatever it was. And then people come up and they start, you know, being really fascinated with, you know, something that actually interacts with them. You can see it actually reacts to the people coming up there. But if we, so one thing is is basically the, I guess the social interactions and the facial expressions and how it understands who to speak to and everything and turn taking. But if we just, you know, take the, the normal kind of chatbot kind of question of uh, when does my train to Frankfurt leave? You know, mm. h- how do you make that work? How do you? Um, so this is this kind of applications where you have this answering. It's sort of a more task oriented, limited domain dialogue. So. Yeah. It's not supposed to talk about anything, mm. uh, but it's supposed to talk about things that are relevant for, for, right. for the train station. Um, so typically what you do is that you try to define uh, different, uh, what we call intents uh, mm. from users. So uh, different types of things you c- might say. And then uh, as a developer, you add examples of every way to say, uh, is my flight delayed? So there are many yes. ways of saying that. So you provide examples and then um, you basically try to classify whatever the user says as, as being one of these intents. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then we have a state chart mechanism for uh, knowing w- in which context you are saying this basically in the dialogue and, mm-hmm. and move forward. So would it be a naive and crude way to say that you have like templates of what to reply with? And you yeah, fill that in with exactly. facts, with, with facts right. and information. Yeah, exactly. So mm-hmm. it's it's at, at at the core, it's sort of fairly rule based, mm-hmm. uh, and then you use sort of uh, machine learning for the more classification tasks mm-hmm. uh, to map that into what kind of action the, the user does and, and know what to what to do next. And so. How do you understand the the sound and make that into text in that way? Do you have your own developed system? No, it's or? not ours. It's, so it's we're relying on Google there. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, using their speech to text. Yeah. Right. But we try to 
do some some more intelligent things there to you can prime the recognizer mm-hmm. so depending on which state in the interaction you're in you can for example listen extra carefully for certain words and so on right. so there are some of these things going on also mm-hmm. and where where does the other tech come in like the tur- turn taking uh, facial recognitions or, or making it more yeah exactly so so yeah there are many bits and pieces and so some of the things are developed by others where we use in this platform and some things we develop ourselves so for example when it comes to face tracking We, have, we are using a face detection software that uh, uses deep learning uh, that is not developed by us, but then uh, we add a face tracking system on top of that because you, you, for every frame you, know, you can see faces, but you have to keep track of who is who uh, when they move around. Uh, so that's algorithms. To keep the conversation. Yeah, you, you need to know it's the same person uh, that is, is moving and it's sort of not the new person popping up somewhere. Uh, and that can be challenging if there are many people Uh, moving around in, in, in a train station, I can. <laughs> yeah, and that's the kind of chaotic situations that we are we are sort of trying to to, de- to deal with. Um, so that's that's another place where sort of uh, yeah, this kind of uh, machine learning comes into the picture. Of course, mm-hmm. is to sort of track track people from a vision perspective. So you have the, the speech to text part you need to mm. do. You have some kind of you know finding a proper response with the actual facts that you mm. need to do. You need to of course go back to speech and text to speech kind yeah, of exactly. them. And I guess yeah. you use Google and yeah, like off the shelf techniques exactly. for that. Yeah. And then you need to do the, the visual kind of face tracking and mm. identifying people and where they are. Mm. But then you also need to have in, in your situation some way to determine what the facial expression should be as well, right? Yeah, we can detect uh, a series of, of facial expressions, but, uh, but I'm thinking more of the generation of it. I mean, ah, the generation of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <coughs> uh, exactly. So that, that's also something that we try to some extent to generate at, at appropriate places, depending on what's happening in the system. Mm. So for example, if, uh, if the robot is um, listening, Mm-hmm. And the user starts to speak. We might want to raise the eyebrows, for example. All right. So we try to map certain facial expressions to other events that is happening in the system that sort of signals to the user uh, what is going on. And that, that's something you can do with this kind of face. Rather than lighting up a lamp saying, I'm listening or something, you mm-hmm. can try to express this in the face in the same way that, that we, we do. It becomes a bit more natural type of discussion. Than yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it feels more like a natural conversation. Um, and that's the motivation, actually. I mean, some people ask, why do you have a human-like robot at all? Mm. And this is one of the motivations, is that we already know how to read these mm. signals. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we can apply it directly to the robot. And, and how do you train that? Is that something that, that you basically have a rule-based system to train up? Or That, that is currently rule-based. We're looking into more data-driven approaches there also. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, This is also connected to, uh, I have a lot of colleagues also at KTH who is doing a lot of very interesting research related to this, how you can go sort of directly from the text that the robot is speaking Mm. to automatically generate appropriate uh, expressions or gestures. Mm. Uh, And uh, you can do that, of course, in a data-driven way if you have videos of people talking and so on. Mm. Mm. Uh, So there's a lot of interesting things going on in the research. And of course, it has to be mature enough to put in a product. So that's always the sort of the challenge of what, uh, you can do a lot of interesting experiments in the research lab, but what works well enough to actually put in a product, that's a, that's a different thing. 
Uh, this is actually a very important classical uh, go to production yeah. Yeah. deploy yes. commit to deploy we talk <laughs> yeah and then you have <laughs> processing exactly. constraints everything has to run on the robot so yes. so we have to sort of choose which things are sort of yeah are, are practical uh, i think should we jump to that topic direct because i think it's so important it's, it's, and it's, it's something and, that and, we and it's, and it's super about. important topic and it's very interesting to see mm. the angle from a human like robotics what yeah, does it very mean concrete to go, kind of example concrete go well. to production yeah let's go there Okay, so so Ferret has this kind of amazing product already. It it works and it's been deployed, and you actually put it in production, which uh, is more than I think a lot of people actually have, especially when it comes to robotics, and not even going to the Boston dynamic. Ah, okay, stop. Anyway, uh, let's if we just speak about this. I mean, you you primarily and initially a researcher, academic researcher, and and you also now have an entrepreneur kind of side to yourself and actually have worked a lot with the challenges of moving something to production. But if we if you were to try to think, you know, what are the top challenges you would say in, in taking a research idea, something you just published or are working with right now from PhD students or whatnot, and actually putting it putting that into a product that can be used in, in practice, what would you say the top challenges are? Yeah, that's a tough question. Uh, I, I think that uh, one problem when it comes to, well, there are, there are many problems, of course. One, one problem when it comes to more machine learning or data-driven methods is that you can do something that works well in, in the lab where you have a limited data set and a limited problem, and that's how you approach these things typically. You say that, okay, I, I, I build in all these limiting things and sort of simplifying assumptions to make my experiment run. Uh, but then... If you put it in a, in a platform like Farhat, it has to work for all these different use cases. And as I said, the, I mean, the, the robot at the airport is just one application. We have other applications uh, where the robot does job interviews or mm. uh, is telling stories or something. And how can that model be general enough for all these different use cases? Mm. Well, often it can't. Uh, so then it's sort of a question. Maybe you would need different models for different use cases and so on. So yes, because you have something running in the lab, it doesn't mean that it's general enough to put in a platform. Mm. Uh, I think that's one of the maybe major limit sort of limitations. And another, of course, is is processing power and so on. That uh, we run most things, everything actually except the speech recognition part, the the speech to text mm. is run on the robot. So the face tracking and everything is run on the robot. And of course, there is some limit to what you can do mm. on the robot. Uh, so uh, so that's also a practical limitation. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think maybe these are two of the, of the things. It has to be robust enough, robust enough basically, mm. for, for work in all these different use cases and, and with real users in, in real scenarios. And perhaps you're an exception, or you are an exception, I would say, um, to what the common scenario is, because I think there's a lot of companies that tries to make use of AI in different ways, and they usually fail. Mm. And they build a prototype that works really well. They can demonstrate some kind of value, saying, if we just you know put this in production, it will generate this much value for, for this company in doing what. But then people fail in doing that. And there is this term called the, the prototype graveyard <laughs> that is starting to gain some traction, I think, which is kind of sad. Mm. Um, but we know the big tech giants, they, they're certainly succeeding with it. And, and they have so much, you know, AI in production in different products and services. So it is possible. It's just that people fail all the time. But you didn't fail. And no, <laughs> not, not yet. <laughs> perhaps it's just because you, you're knowledgeable enough. But 
if you were to just you know reason or try to guess about you know why so many people fail about putting things in production, uh, well, it's I don't think that it's their fault. I mean, it is extremely hard to know beforehand what will work uh, mm. and what people. I mean, also as in general, I guess if you start a company, what will, what do people need and yeah. what? I mean. I can't even predict my own needs. So sometimes, you know, you read about this new gadget and you think that, oh, I would la- I would want that kind of thing, uh, a new camera or something. And you buy it and you never use it. Mm-hmm. But you thought you would use it. Mm-hmm. So you can't even pr- pr- predict your own sort of <laughs> usage. Yeah. And then uh, other things like the iPad. I, when I read about it, I thought, this is stupid. Why would I need an iPad? I have a laptop. But I bought one anyway. And then I started to use it all the time. Yeah. So I can't predict my own sort of usage. How could I predict yeah. other people, <laughs> other people's needs? So I think it's extremely hard uh, before you actually try it mm. uh, out in real life. It's extremely hard to predict mm. and, and to, to build a business case, I guess. Mm. Yeah. But, but how do you see, because I to some degree see you as in a unique position to understand the core dimensions, what needs to happen to go to production here. Uh, and you might, uh, so I, I working a lot in the in, in the large enterprise where, where the pilot graveyard or the prototype graveyard is very prevalent. It, it has something to do with also that people tr- try something for the wrong reasons, right? Mm-hmm. They, they like to, they want to show something off, they want to show their cutting edge, but they have, they have not really thought through or understood all the different bits and pieces that need to go together. I, I, would, I would assume, and that's my question, that you probably have a better grasp than most of about the whole process here, that what needs to happen. I think that could be, people don't really understand how far you need to take it to go to production. Yeah, uh, that's true. I mean, one thing that sort of saves us a bit here is that we are building a a platform that we are initially, especially selling to researchers who are Mm -hmm. a little bit more forgiving. Mm-hmm. that uh, we are at an early stage. I mean, the first prototype that we sold to Disney was <laughs> extremely prototypey, but mm-hmm. uh, they were okay with that uh, and uh, because it was a research lab. Uh, and also the fact that we are doing it as a, um, as a platform, because we don't know yet what, why you would need a social robot. Uh, we have to explore this. Mm-hmm. And the way to explore it is to create a platform that different people can... Uh, try out and explore different applications together with us. And some of these will certainly or have already failed. So there is sort of a prototype graveyard (laughs) already there in all the things that people have used for hat for. But uh, I think that's fine because we have to explore uh, what to use it for. And that's also a difference, I would say, from other. There are a lot, there are several examples of sort of failed social robots project where they already decided from the start what this what robot should be used for mm. uh, and it turned out it wasn't a viable sort of use case uh, and that's why it failed and i think that, that, that you said it yourself now that was exactly the point that you had, were enlightened enough to understand we don't really know we are humble yeah. so we make it a platform which is genius depending on where where the maturity of this whole phenomenon is and i think if you go as an example, as you highlighted, someone has already, oh, we think we know this. That's another graveyard that you think you know, but you don't really have the data to back it up. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a challenge to build a platform, of course, as you, yeah. <laughs> because uh, it's very broad and you, you can't sort of build in a lot of assumptions into the platform. Mm-hmm. We talked about these machine learning models. You can't 
put the model in there because it depends on the use case. So there's a lot of problems there. Uh, but at the same time, you have the benefit of being open to, to exploration. But was this a huge discussion? Like I can imagine. Yeah, yeah sure. Thinking about no, this. Very, very early on, we had this discussion because everyone that came into the project early on said, you can't build a platform because you have to decide what the robot is for. <laughs> you, have to build a ro- <laughs> you have to build a robot for this application or decide what the application is. And uh, I think that that's, uh, but, but, but we, uh, we, we wanted to build a platform. But it's hard for startups and, you know, so many startups fail, both in Sweden and, and around the world. And uh, one thing you have to think about and something we've spoken quite mm-hmm. a lot about is what should the go-to-market strategy be in some way? And, and we have, you know, one person that we often bring up, which is Elon Musk, <laughs> which has a bit of a different go-to-market strategy, strategy I think, than, than many people. Uh, if you take Tesla, for example, he perhaps targets like power users or people that really want fast cars first. It's kind of a weird, I think, when you start thinking about it. Mm. But it was really smart in some way. And then turned towards the mass market in a later point in time when you have the finances to, to actually do that in some way. Did you have a specific way of, you know, h- how to go to market? Did you think about the strategy for that? In a sense, it's similar to that. Currently, the robot is very expensive. Mm. So it means that it's not an end consumer product. You couldn't right. put it in, in the home of, of a, an elderly person to, to <laughs> because so it w- wouldn't be. So, so we decided that this is, uh, this is an expensive product for uh, initially doing exploration uh, and research sort of and development. So actually a very clear understanding for who you think could, will be the first wave buying this type yeah, of research. Yeah, exactly. Research. And then once we have sort of passed this exploration phase and starting to see what the robot is actually good for, what kind of use cases? Right. Then you can't. St- then you can start to think about how can you actually cut cut cost. the price and, and, and also and narrow down then the use case application yeah, exactly. and then go on cost for this. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. uh, I think that's a problem that many of uh, developers of social robots have fa- have faced is that it's so hard. If you want to make an end consumer product, people are used to be able to buy a, a computer, a laptop for three thousand crowns, uh, nothing. And uh, if you want to create a social robots uh, that costs uh, thirty thousand, nobody will buy it. Uh, so, so it's uh, it's yeah, it's it's very hard uh, to start addressing and the end users. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's very interesting. Yeah, I wish more people had like a good way to to really go to market and, and know all the challenges. And I think you enlightened a, a lot of people now. You know what the problems are. Still, I must say, it sounds like it was easy for you in some way. No, <laughs> it was not. How many years was this in the making from being a research project to, to the product? Well, it has very gradually uh, grown, I would say, uh, from that. So uh, the, the first research prototype was perhaps built around 2011 or so. We started the company in 2014 and uh, immediately because we had a request from, from Disney to buy uh, one, one of these. So Disney was the first customer. That yeah, had. Yes. exactly. Okay. It's always good to have a customer lined up for <laughs> <that> company. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was it was just buying one research unit, but still it was very nice, of course, to have them course, interested yeah. in this. And it looked, uh, of course, it, it's, a, it's a very nice customer to have. So, uh, and then there were a lot of universities and so on who were also interested in, in, in buying it. Um, but uh, at that stage, it was still very sort of much of a prototype. Uh, and then as we got more customers and more understanding of it, 
uh, and, and we got some funding and so on, we could gradually make it more and more as a professional uh, product. Uh, so it has really grown uh, sort of more organically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also another, another angle on this go to production and be successful. Uh, would you want to elaborate a little bit on the Furha team? Mm-hmm. What's the team behind this? And that's very interesting, of course, to understand also. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it's a team. We, we as founders, we were we were uh, three from uh, uh, me and uh, Samer uh, Almobayed, who is now the CEO. Uh, this was one of his uh, sort of project as a PhD uh, student at KTH, and his supervisor Jonas. Uh, and me, so we were three people working together on this uh, uh, and started the company. Um, and now uh, uh, Summer is uh, the only one working full time on, on Farhat and me and Jonas are still working as professors also at, uh, at KTH. Uh, and then the team grew organically now, so we have of course uh, uh, an engineering team working on the software platform and uh, working on the, on the hardware. Uh, and uh, of course, sales team and so on, uh, looking at different use cases and uh, selling it to to these uh, different research uh, researchers uh, around. And was it easy for you to see sort of what fundamental skills you needed for the different pieces? I mean, like from a re- because you've been researching it, it's you know you knew your problems. So I, I guess you, you needed, or was that hard to pick? Um, yeah. A bit, perhaps. Uh, again, I think it, we sort of we have grown organically when we have seen needs. But yeah. I, of course, it's a hard to balance. How much engineering should you have, and how much sort of should you push for for sales and so yeah, yeah. on? Um, but uh, yeah. But did you do some fundraising as well, or did you? Uh, we we uh, did. So we have investors. Um, yeah. Uh, one in uh, in England, Balderton, mm-hmm. and one in Singapore, mm-hmm. uh, Qualcomm. Okay, oh, so. interesting. Mm-hmm. So. Cool. Um, and perhaps as a, just to close this uh, theme, and I'm eager to move in, into some other things. But if you were to redo some uh, the whole process today, what would you have done differently to make Furhat as successful as possible? Uh, I think that's extremely hard to say because. Uh, so easy to look back in hindsight and yeah. <laughs> 2020 vision. But I mean, that's the whole thing that you can't do that and you have to grow. So I okay, think in a sense, I mean, let me rephrase the question. If yes. you were to give some advice to a person that had mm. an awesome you know, idea and they want to build a startup around it, what would they get? Gu- how would you guide them to proceed? I think this general advice of getting it out there and getting customers very early, mm. which is a common advice. Yeah. But uh, I think that's extremely important to see that people actually start using what you're building yeah. and uh, getting their feedback. Uh, I think that's extremely important to not just sit and develop something mm. and then eventually let someone use it. But yeah. uh, And also use it yourself. I mean, yeah. dog fooding. Yeah, exactly. But, it, but it, this yeah. is a recurrent theme from many angles, right? Mm. So how do you... How can you shorten the distance for each iteration and yeah. get feedback? The whole, you know, MVP uh, thinking or whatever you want to call it. And we we've talked about this. Do you want a huge runway? You know, we talked a bit, uh, with another friend of ours, um, and I think it's prof- it's really important uh, because I think we are m- doing this mistake all the time, not only as a startup but also in our innovation projects inside a big company. Yeah? 
Mm. So it's a simple, simple, very basic advice that actually has quite a lot of implications on how you set up the project. Mm. No, exactly. And of course, it's easier when you have this kind of product that you can afford to iterate many mm. times that we could, for every hardware iteration, we could change things because early on we work with 3D printers and mm. stuff. So we could very quickly change things between each iteration mm. uh, and, and produce it on a, on a very small scale. Uh, so uh, if you can afford to do that, I think that's great uh, to have many itera- as many iterations as possible. Mm-hmm. Let me move in uh, to, to another but related topic. So uh, I've struggled to find competitors to Furhat. And uh, if we bring up one, I, I don't think it is a competitor, but uh, a lot of people have heard about Sofia. Mm-hmm. It's a robot, I think, that was the first person to become a citizen in Saudi Arabia or something. I'm sure which country, but um, that was the first like robot to, to become a citizen. And <laughs> there's a lot of videos on her, and I think it's from Hanson Robotics. Yeah. And, and she can do facial expressions as well. Um, and there is a physical presence that she can provide. Um, to start, you know, what's your thoughts about Sofia to start with in general sense? Uh, yeah, I, to start with, I'm not sure it is a competitor in the sense that I, I'm not sure you can even buy Sofia. No, well, maybe you no. can, but it's probably extremely expensive. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, At least play the video if you can. It's uh, and... Uh, so, so that's that's a, a difference. Uh, we can come back to actual competitors, okay. I think, yeah. uh, later. Uh, but uh, one of the things, of course, yeah, they are trying to build something that uh, sort of is similar to a, to, to a human mm. uh, and human-human interaction. But um, of course, w- when it comes to the actual hardware, the approach is uh, very different. Of course, they are. This is. Typical also from, uh, if you look at robots from Japan, they often use this. So you have a lot of servo motors in the face and some kind of artificial skin. Mm. Uh, so it's supposed to look very human-like if you uh, just look at a still build, mm. but uh, still a photo. But but uh, once it starts moving, it, it starts, it looks very creepy mm. because it's very hard to match this very human-like appearance with human-like motion mm. using these sensors servo motors and so on and so it's apart it's from the fact that it's very expensive to produce with all these servo motors but it's mechanical it's behind the skin in, in a yeah, way exactly, yeah exactly exactly uh, which makes it makes it fragile and expensive and so on and not very flexible again with ferret you can project different faces and this is fixed um so so it's it's i can't really see any argument for why you would want to have this kind of mechanical Mm. Uh, solution when you can have back projection. I think exactly. I mean, I think the back projection exactly. part that you do is so genius because it, they actually make it work in a in a practical way and, and surprisingly realistic way quickly today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do, uh, do you think it also says something about you know the state of robotics in general uh, that yeah, it's, it's very it's far behind? I think that's the reason where you come from because if you look at the robots today uh, and. Most of them are developed by people who have a background in robot. We didn't have a background in robotics. We had oh. a, back, a background in uh, speech communication and speech right. technology and exactly. natural language processing and so on. So we were sort of more thinking, what? How do I get the from a blank slate? Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And they were thinking, of course, if you're a robotics person and you're asked to build a human face, mm-hmm. you start thinking about mechanics. servos mm-hmm. and mechanics. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where you start. So that's what most people do, mm-hmm. and and. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I can't really see any motivations for doing that, actually, when it comes to the face of the robot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, are, we are even, now we are sliding into first principle, having mm-hmm. a clean slate, really, um, uh, this is another side pet uh, discussion. Mm-hmm. You know, th- th- there are, when we have several nice in- interviews and stuff like that, there are some recurring themes, what really works or what is, seems to be important. And another one is that whole first principle idea. Once again, something we talked about that Elon Musk has uh, has done well, right? To really, okay, how can I rethink the process? Or how can I rethink the whole thing from scratch Mm. and not build my business model or my engineering idea on on an analogy, but rather completely from scratch? Mm. So I think that's interesting now because you come into this topic of robotics, but you're not stuck in the mindset of what it's supposed to be. No, I think uh, that might definitely help. And uh, uh, yeah, and and, and most robots today still, they are either using the servo or the robot is completely uh, sort of a plastic stiff Mm. face, which doesn't have any expressions at all. So Sophia, for one, you know, she has the physical performance of the robot, which is very lacking and the servo motors that they, they have in the face and, and she can barely or walk at all if possible. Yeah, no. she, she has a lot of lacking skills when it comes to the physical, physical robotics. Mm. And then the, I mean, your specialty is also in conversational systems mm. and how you can have, you know, turn taking and the conversation in a human like manner. And, um, do you have any knowledge? I'm not sure how much you know about the, the internal workings of Sophia or how they do the not conversational really, systems. Not really, I would say. It's very hard to say. I don't think they have published much about that. So it's very hard to, to read about or understand mm. what they have done. Uh, so uh, I don't think it's very sophisticated. Uh, I don't mm. think they publish at conferences re- related yeah. to conversational systems and so on. Mm. Uh, so... Uh, of course, if you look at these videos, all of them are sort of staged conversations. Right. So yeah. it's, uh, uh, I, I don't know if it has ever been deployed at any real scenario like mm. Frankfurt Airport. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, probably I, would, I would be scared if I saw yeah. Sophia at uh, an airport. <laughs> So yeah, no, I think it's 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 mainly built to for stage performances, yeah. uh, and of course we get these requests also sometimes to for st- to do stage yeah. performances. So it's it's very intriguing with these robots and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's of course a different thing to build a, an actual application. Yeah. But let me just quickly talk a bit about robotics and the physical, you know, performance mm-hmm. of, of robots in general. And I remember back in two thousand and one, I believe. Uh, I went to this Ishkai conference and, and they had this uh, RoboCup mm. competition. And, and uh, this is basically a, a soccer competition for robots playing football or soccer. And they had different leagues, you know, small, the dog size, the Sony Ibo things and mid size and, and also humanoid, basically two legged kind of robots trying to play football, but in horrible kind of performance and they <laughs> can't do anything. And, yeah. and, and the performance of them is really not Good. But then you have the simulation league where the strategy of playing soccer is amazingly high, much better than humans in mm-hmm. be, being able to plan, but in a simulated environment. That's a virtual. What, and, but still, they have the goal of 2050 that the, the world champion of robotic soccer should be able to beat the human world champion in soccer. What do you think about that prediction? Do you think that will happen? 
I'm not a robotics person <laughs> again, so I wouldn't dare to make a prediction about that, actually. Uh, but, uh, well, maybe, yeah. I guess it depends on whether the robot... I mean, it sounds quite dangerous, actually, to have mm-hmm. a, a robot on the field playing <laughs> football, I would say. I, I can tell you, yeah. like, a story. You know, they have this mid-sized league, and, and, and that way they basically have a centralized computer steering all the players in one team. And the way to basically eject the football or hit the football is they have a scovel wheel wheel that turns really fast and as soon as you hit the football it just goes real you know goes really fast but then at some point if, if they do something wrong they they have the scovel wheel actually hitting a um, uh, another team player instead team player. and the team player goes playing basically <laughs> flying. <laughs> flying out of the field which is uh, it's not a good thing so yeah. uh, if that were to happen with a human yeah. uh, probably yeah. not a good uh, yeah. solution okay yeah. so uh, I, I have a question uh, back a little bit to your uh, KTH. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you get a grant uh, quite yeah, recently? Yeah, exactly. Some week ago from uh, the Swedish Research Council, Vetenskapsrådet. Uh, um, so um, that's uh, very nice. It's it's uh, building on, on this turn-taking thing, but thinking more broadly about um, how you can make um, predictions about the future in a conversation. So, as I said, if you look at two humans talking, and they can switch turn very quickly with, as I said, just like 200 milliseconds. And that's not really possible to do if you would sort of, if I would wait for you to stop speaking and then think, what should I say now? Uh, and then start to plan that and then start to speak, you would get a very, 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 very long silence. So obviously, while you are talking, I am preparing what I should say next. I'm, I'm projecting how how your uh, the Policy. thing you're saying Where, how, will will it end? How not when just also when, but also how. So I'm projecting the words you are saying, and and trying to figure out what you will say and how I should respond to that. Otherwise, it would be impossible for me to answer with just 200 milliseconds uh, of silence. So, uh, of course, we do all this sort of subcomment. We don't think about these things, but we, but we have to do them. And, and these psycholinguists uh, looking at this have, have been aware for the, of this for a long time, that it has to be this way, but it's very unclear how we do this. And this is what I, uh, I'm interested in. How can you build a machine that can predict what you will say next? Uh, to be prepared to answer. To be prepared to answer. Uh, and... Um, that's very interesting from sort of a machine learning perspective because uh, that's sort of what many of these language models and so on are doing is to trying to predict what will come next in a sentence, for example. Attention uh, and transformers. And yeah, exactly. So, so <laughs> we're already starting to look at these things. About how, how can you? How early can you predict uh, what a person will do next? So. Uh, so let me ask the question. So how do you plan to get that done? So what's the techniques that you have uh, thinking about for this grant now? Uh, yeah, so um, we've already started uh, sort of looking at uh, using, uh, for example, um, looking at only the speech and the prosody to to um, use a recurrent neural network, for example, uh, to predict uh, how how likely it is that this person will speak or not in a three-second win- window in the future. Uh, so we just train it on a lot of conversations. We collect conversations and we train it to conversations to make these predictions. 
and um, actually it turned out and, and then we gave humans the same task so we said okay we stop here in the conversation you have to guess who will speak next uh, and the machine actually did better than slightly better than than humans oh. uh, ah, to, to so predict to predict so, so gi gi given that someone has stopped speaking you have to predict who will be the next speaker mm. uh, which might sound like an easy thing but it's not uh, so uh, so you can actually train it to do that uh, but uh, then we also looked at how you can do this using more uh, like a GPT mm -hmm. uh, model, GPT-2. Mm -hmm. um, not so three. Not three. <laughs> we don't have that it's one. not available. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> standing but, joke. But then you can actually look at what has happened more um, earlier on in the conversation and what people have said before uh, to make these kind of predictions even better. Uh, so and, and then we want to combine both these sort of more uh, the words, the, the language, yeah, yeah, and, and and the acoustic part. And if you combine these, you can make sort of even better predictions about. So not using text directly, but sound audio directly, or both of them together. Uh, okay. So we're combining and maybe gaze also uh, mm. to make predictions about the future. And I think that sort of relates to uh, a lot of theories about what what really how how we as humans in general how intelligence works is it, it is a lot about predictions and mm. trying mm. to predict what will happen next it's not just in a conversation but in general we always try to predict what will happen so sound um, and, and text are you going to use like video and facial expressions uh, as well, yeah or? not to start with perhaps but de definitely uh, eventually and and use these different uh, so so i'm just curious how is the goal of the research presented like like the value proposition so to speak the value proposition is basic i mean that's why it's good to have also from a research perspective to to be able to point at forehead and say okay we have this product and i know what the problems are <laughs> yeah. uh, we run into them all the time uh, and i can motivate why we need uh, what things Better. we need to improve um, and i know th things like uh, for example turn taking uh, are things that we run into um, and we, we need better models to so have a more fluent interaction. So ultimately more fluent, mm. natural conversation, yeah. even multi-party. Exactly. Um, so so more, closer and closer to, to human. More human uh, interaction. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's the that's the value proposition. Yeah. And who's, who, who in the industry is most interested in this? Because there's, of course, tons of different... Um, types of use cases for this, but where do you see this next level mm, uh, actually, starts to happen most first? Yeah, exactly. That's I'm missing this part a bit uh, in general. I mean, if you look at the big, big ones uh, like Google and so on, uh, and you look at these smart speakers and mm, chatbots and exactly. so on, they are mostly thinking about what the system mm. should say or type, but not so much about how to create a fluent interaction. Uh, and the interaction with the smart speak is not very fluent. Uh, but, but jump into that discussion because uh, there are a number of recent models published by Facebook and Google, like uh, mm. the Blender system and the MENA system, that are these huge transformer models you mm. know, with billion of parameters and trained on all the conversation from Facebook and Google and whatnot, and and can at least produce a set of like textual. Yeah dialogues yeah. that seems rather human wouldn't you mm -hmm. say or uh, in some sense in some sense yes uh, i mean the, the general approach there is to build what they call open domain mm -hmm. systems so 
you you uh, scrape the internet for all kinds of dialogues you can find, yeah. uh, and uh, then you just train a model that tries to mimic this. Uh, and for that, you can build a certain type of dialogue. Uh, but the problem is that what if you want to uh, do something where there is an activity going on, like me going mm. to the airport There's asking about information? There's a purpose a with this interaction. Not just general. No, bullshit. exactly. Uh, then you can't really use this system, not at least directly. You have to do mm. something more <coughs> for it to have some knowledge about this specific domain. I mean, they can have general knowledge, like mm. uh, who's the president. But not uh, like real-time so facts. Comes not real-time facts. And it's also hard to have a... Let's say that you and me would plan a trip uh, to Paris or something. Mm. So if I would ask Mina, can we pl- plan a trip to Paris? Mm-hmm. We'll probably say something sensible. Yes, sure, do that. Mm-hmm. And then I start saying things and it will say something, but it will very quickly lose sense of mm-hmm. what I- is our activity, what, what, what have we committed to right. so far, and what is our current plan. These, all these things will be lost because mm-hmm. that's not really what it's doing. It's on a deeper level, it's not really doing anything. Mm-hmm. It's only providing sort of sensible answers to... It sounds like a GPT-3 in, in many ways. Yeah, yeah, so yeah and I'm glad to hear that. Now we are cutting <laughs> GPT-3. <laughs> all right, let's it's not really it. doing anything. It's not it's doing anything. Now. It's just cool. Yeah, yeah it, on, on a surface <laughs> level, it, it, it seems cool. to be doing something. And, and it is super cool. And mm. it, it is, it is if, impressive. If, if you it's want impressive, to, yeah. Yeah, if you want to emulate that kind of sort of initial interaction with between two people but, at a bar, but here we have a, you can here, do that. But, but here we have a proper use case application. We want to do something. We want yeah. it to be meaningful yeah. to provide an outcome. Yeah. No. Then, so what's missing, no. right? What, what is it that you want to work on? What is the thing that you need to add to these systems, in your opinion? Yeah, so I think, unfortunately, this kind of end-to-end approach is very hard to apply. If it's a generalist to, one. Yeah. Uh, if you just give it a lot of dialogue data, it's not going to be able to do these kind of things. So you have to break it down and say more that, narrow. yeah, and say that, okay, we have these different components and certain parts you can use deep learning and, and train and so on. But other parts you can't yet do that. You don't think you can inject like facts that comes in through a different channel somehow? You could, but then it's also a little bit hard to find all that data you would need. So if you want to build a robot uh, standing at a train station, answering questions, where would you get that data? Uh, Connected to uh, the data timetable, like the, the schedule. I mean, like there's domain data here, of yeah, course. Yeah, exactly. There's domain data. So you need dialogue data connected to, to domain, domain data. data. Um, yeah. Most conversations have some kind of uh, sort of background or setting for why we are talking. But mm. if you just find a conversation on the internet, there is no information about that. Why were these people having this conversation? That uh, purpose bit is lost. Yeah, exactly. The the whole dialogue is is actually conditioned on these purposes and so on. But you don't know that when you're scraping this data. Uh, So you can't really train the model sort of conditioned on on these things. So how can we improve the the science and and the research being done in this field to move towards more like usable purpose uh, applications in that field? There is a lot of work being done where you try to combine these approaches. And of course, Mm. you can collect data to some extent uh, in in a limited domain and and where where you have control over these things. Mm. But uh, either you try to do that, which some people are doing, or you try to break the system, uh, sort of try not maybe to do everything end to end, but try to compartmentalize in, in, in different components. Yeah. Uh, and I guess that's where we will be mostly going, I think, uh, with Farhat is still to 
look at it as different sort of components. Do you think there is a lack of a big uh, commonly used data set like ImageNet, but for conversational systems that have that there, component there, in I, it? Or? I think there are, but I think there is. it's very hard to... There, there are these data sets and there are challenges and so on. Similar, Even to, with real-time data being like... Not, not, not with some kind of data. There, there is, for example, a system that can answer questions about Wikipedia and mm. so on, where you have the data of Wikipedia. But still that would be limited to talking about Wikipedia. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it's, it's very hard to get away from the fact that every such... It costs a lot to put together these data sets and it's still limited to that domain. Isn't the, the problem really you need to train them on, on, on some piece of static data in some way that you have, yeah. but then being able to connect it to a dynamic data yeah, set. Exactly. That so, 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 let, so let's say an example here. So we have, we, we are actually having a human standing there at the airport yeah. answering all the questions. We record all the conversations and when yes. we train a model on this, so it can actually act as this human. But what happens when the information that the human was talking about changes? Mm. Uh, then all the conversation would change. Yeah. And, and do we have to re-record all this <laughs> conversation? So again, yeah, you have to, to sort of separate this mm. uh, somehow. But I, but I hear between the line here that you also think there is, you know, don't be too dogmatic. Everything should be machine learning. No. Actually think carefully when is business mm. rule systems quite useful, right? Mm. And when is, the, is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. I think so. And uh, I mean, you should, Look at machine learning as yet another tool. Yes, it's sometimes very useful, um, and uh, probably the more we develop, the, the more things it can do with less data and so on. So it becomes more and more useful. But uh, at every point, you should of course ask yourself whether it's useful now for your problem. Right and now. and yeah. to, to 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 a reasonable cost as well. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and is it possible to get data for this problem and uh, yeah, all these practical the questions? The whole simple, the whole rule, make it the simple, you, there's a nice uh, say, go for the simple uh, solution. Yeah, the Occam's Racer. Oc thing. Occam's mm -hmm. Racer, mm -hmm. and, and <coughs> where, by the way, not everybody loves the Occam's Racer. Yes, uh, well, I, I do. But do you like the Occam's Racer? You think it's correct? Uh, yeah, on, on a very general level, I guess so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure, you should. Find the simple. But perhaps this moves into to another topic, which I think is very interesting. Mm -hmm. and, and that is, you know, the, the current academic research in deep learning, if we take that mm -hmm. specifically. And, and there is this person called Jer Jeremy Howard. He, he was uh, previously, I think, uh, president of Kaggle, now founder of Fast AI and uh, public speaker in, in many settings. And he basically says, the current research in deep learning is a total waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> And he, he's referring a bit to the, the focus is a lot about, you know, trying to come in on top of some kind of leaderboard for some kind of data sets. Mm -hmm. And it's like a few percentage points higher in, in accuracy for some task. But in reality, it's not really about the, the problems that you have for using AI in practice. And things like like active learning or uh, other techniques like that, where where you really need to, to to have the data to be able to train something or to do something, it's not really popular and not really mm. um, uh, a hot topic, so to speak, in research. And what, what do you think about these kind of yeah, thinking? Yeah, I, I don't think it's specific to deep learning. I guess it has always been like that. That if you can uh, just uh, take uh, mo most people when you do research or if you're become a PhD student, 
the most convenient thing is to ask, is there a data set somewhere that I can work on or <laughs> yes. I can improve? Yeah, one percentage point higher. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's a very sort of convenient way of, of doing research is mm. to uh, let someone else formulate the problem for you. Yeah. Uh, and you can just work on that and, and you can contribute, of course, but often the contribution is quite small. Mm. Uh, so uh, asking yourself, maybe this the problem is not formulated in the right way. We should right. reformulate the problem. Very yes. few people do that, I, I think. First uh, principle thinking. <laughs> First principle thinking <laughs> yeah. in research. But, but you as a, uh, at KTH, can you see this in, in how your students approach this? And can you see, oh, yeah. he's an he's a extra star for rethinking the problem, stuff like this? Uh, yeah, sure. I, I try to do that. It's hard. Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's not like you can just decide. I I, I want to rethink things, but uh, <laughs> of course, if I I'm aiming to to do that at least uh, to try to formulate new problems and not just sort of improve on things where which are already formulated as a problem, uh, and it doesn't always pay off very well because. Nope. It it's, takes, a moonshot more, more it's, it's a moonshot more. It's a more moonshot and sometimes it takes time for people to recognize that that was an interesting question. Mm. Some people might recognize it and find it very interesting and so on. But it so might, might be easier to... to so uh, there's actually an inbuilt part of the system now that is easier to get published on something that people recognize I as important. So. And, and also now I do a little if, bit better. If you look at in academia, the, uh, sort of that's the, the incentive mm. is that uh, you should publish as yeah. much as possible uh, and if you can slice up your research in, in sort of small research <laughs> contributions and publish more, uh, you, you, you get sort of better the scores and so on. So minimized publishing units or something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so so, so it, it is absolutely set up in, in a way that uh, sort of incentivizes oh, you to and, and, and if we now want AI and we want research that is now useful, really tackling these things that we maybe actually quite a lot of people truly understands, but we kind of not do it. What needs to change in the system to, to, to promote this or to, I mean, like it's the KPIs is the way we set things up and steer that kind of leads us down a path. Yeah, it's tricky because of course there is a benefit of, of sort of, uh, tasks like, uh, uh, you define ImageNet and give it a task because then you can really measure imp imp improvement. improvement. Yeah. And so, so of course, and that that has been the same in my field that you set up tasks and you can actually measure improvement. So that's good also. But then the problem is when you get stuck in those problems um, for a long time after that. Uh, so I think we need both, but it's more of a healthy a healthy balance between these two things that are needed. Uh, so it, it's not like we should not do this kind of improvement, uh, gradual incremental improvement at all, but it's it's more like find, finding this balance. Uh, and maybe in academia, you, you, there could be more work on, on sort of, uh, sometimes you have this, you, you can have provocation papers or, or things where you sort of more allow people to, to try out different ideas in a more wild way without yet having any concrete results. Yeah. There are so many angles on this now. So yeah, and just one additional you know topic inside this kind of how academic research is being done in deep learning or machine learning or AI or conversational systems in general. There is also this problem of how traditional conferences work, how journals work, and the lead times that you have to actually do a publication. And, you know, these days we have archive and mm. these type of systems where you usually do preprints, you know, before publications. And I would guess you start to do referencing to preprints more or almost than the proper conferences. 
Yeah. What's your thinking about the, the whole idea of, you know, traditional conferences and journal, journals? Uh, I still like it in the way that it provides some kind of quality um, uh, measure. Uh, with this preprint, it's sometimes now even big companies don't care about conferences. They yeah. just put it Direct archive. directly. Because if Google publish something, they know people will yeah. read it anyway. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Why would I bother yeah. trying to publish it? <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, I still think the sort of the some kind of quality assurance system is yeah. is good to have. Uh, so because uh, so, so we know it's a lot of bad, bad research being done for sure. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, I'm not I'm not at all into uh, the uh, uh, research on on COVID and so on. But you've heard a lot of mm. complaints about all these research being pumped out on archive. Right. Uh, without being peer reviewed and and journalists start citing that mm. uh, before it has actually been confirmed mm. uh, and uh, maybe it's that that that's a more severe <laughs> problem than in 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 the field of computer science well, if journalists at least yeah. cite ar- archive pipe papers it's better than perhaps other things yeah but, uh, and and there's something that's been floating around i i saw it uh, blink through in the in the news feed or if it was linkedin uh, uh, several researchers now uh, sort of going together and say enough is enough. This is not real research anymore because more and more people are publishing papers without any results that we can actually look at and compare the results and learn from and take it further. And it was these statistics like less than 15% had real data that you could actually look at what they've done mm. and take it further. So have you? what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, I guess that's a big problem. I mean, I personally mostly actually, I don't look that mu- much at archive. I, I mostly look at conference. And so, this is typically so the Googles and, and the stuff. The, the, the yeah, I mean, industry. sometimes there are exceptional cases and but then typically you read about it or someone says you should read this. But but otherwise, I think there is a healthy filter uh, in in these conferences, selecting papers that are actually worth. Uh, and and that, that then that has, I, because somewhere when you don't have the data and it's not open anymore, how can we take it further? Uh, yeah, that's that's a problem also, of course, of, of, of uh, sharing data and so on. I think to some extent that has uh, also become better, perhaps that people are more used to uh, having to publish your your data and being open about your data. At least again, if you look at conferences, they are asking more for this now that you should you actually sort of have to publish your data and, and make your studies re- reproducible and so on. Exactly. Uh, so I think, uh, at least for conferences, th- this has actually been an improvement, I would say, recently. Yeah, I um, agree. And, and uh, even if there has been an increase in both publishing data sets and I think also the code, you know, mm. for, yeah, for that's whatever the kind of models. That, that was the argument. Mm. The problem, I think, especially in, in conversational systems and NLP that you work with, is that you know you can't really train a GPT-3 model yourself. Mm. You can't really train a MIDA model yourself. Mm. I mean, that requires like thousands of machines and many, many millions of dollars to train. What's yeah. your thinking there? I mean, how could you ever you know, produce a similar model uh, as the tech giants can without having their resources? No, I guess you, you can't. And <laughs> that, yeah, that, that is a problem perhaps, but it, it depends on how uh, important uh, GPT-3 turns out to yeah, be. But, but let's ignore yeah, GPT-3 because yeah. it, it's kind of a joke. It's over have, now. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, but it's, it is very expensive, of course, to, to uh, and not for everyone to train these models. And mm. um, I, yeah, I don't have a good solution. <laughs> but has it problem. been a problem in your research? No, we haven't there? trained that kind of models okay. yet. That uh, requires that no, fundamental no, change. No, no. Mm. 
so, so for us, for, for the kind of research problems I've looked at, that has not been a problem. Mm. I'm glad to hear. Can, can we now, can we talk a little bit about uh, the need and the purpose of more um, um, ac- academic research versus uh, industry research? Mm. And, w- you know, is, uh, is it the same? Is it different? Uh, my father, who is a, is a doctor by trade, but actually it's, you know, he, he was medical doctor, a medical doctor, but he's a docent in physiology and he did, he did his physiologian in, in, in Göteborg. And we came into this conversation not so long ago where he's basically like with very strong firm, I don't know how we came into this, but as, as a private conversation, like we need to have uh, academic, like open research or, or generalist, I think he used the word in Swedish, journalist mm. research, because that's how we really open up the next level. So not tied to a very concrete problem, or I don't know how, you, how to frame that. So how do you feel about, how do you think about all that? Like the, the purpose of academia versus industry and, you know, yeah. research? Yeah, I'm not sure I understand that question. Maybe, no, I'm not, not very well well framed, I guess. But it's I'm, I'm trying to sort of understand um, your point or ideas around: uh, Do we need generalist research? Is that mm-hmm. and, and, and is that more the purpose of academia? Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess well, one way to phrase can, it: I You mean, can frame it. There is probably. two dimensions, I think, to this point. One Thanks. is being open and you know publishing the results and being frank and not doing patents, but really doing. Mm-hmm. Know, scientific articles describing the thing to be able to reproduce it, including code and data. And I think even industries, especially in AI, are doing that really well, like Google and mm. Facebook. Not perhaps Amazon and Apple, but mm. yeah, some companies are. <laughs> but then there are um, this um, other issue, which um, is more about, you know, if you have industrial work, sometimes they, they choose not to publish about it and, and they want to really... Uh, yeah, keep it to themselves in some way and, and have mm. proprietary kind of systems that they develop and not really share. That's one area. And, and the other point that I would like to point to, I think what you meant is yes. more the fundamental type of research versus yes. more applied research. Mm. Yes, mm. that was what I'm trying to okay. Yeah. Yeah. okay, good. Fundamental versus applied is probably the best. That was my yeah. angle at least. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, no, of course, I think the... Uh, it's extremely important to be that we can fund more more uh, fundamental research um, uh, and and that there is enough funding and and sort of patience for that and i think sometimes of course the uh, the government is very eager to see uh, quick sort of results yeah. uh, and uh, sort of being able to always motivate the commercial uh, value of everything and uh, I think uh, there's a balance. Of course, you should be able to motivate why your research is important, uh, uh, but maybe not always in that kind of sort of short term. Uh, Mm -hmm. And of course, there are so many examples. So so phrased in a different way, where do you think investments are lacking today? Is it in more fundamental research or is it more in applied research? In the field of data, AI and conversation systems. it's, it's, it's... hard to say in general, I would say, uh, uh, I think in Sweden in general, we, we have quite a lot of, of funding, especially now in AI with, with uh, WASP mm, and so yes, on. Yeah. There is uh, <laughs> so much money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's almost hard, I guess, to, to find the <laughs> right, <laughs> to find the right people to do the research. Uh, 
so uh, so in that area, I, I don't think uh, fu- funding is uh, is a problem. But is it too much focus on fundamental or applied? Then? What do you think? No, I think I don't know exactly. I, I think it seems like it's a fairly good, very uh, good mix. I think. Uh, yeah. You're being very diplomatic, and yeah, I can uh, I can see that you are no, thinking but about I, you know, how no, to. No, I would also say that the, the area is so broad. So mm, I'm yes. sure someone in some other area, which is not close to mine, would say that he's crazy and mm. uh, there is too much of this or too little of that. But uh, but in your from, area, from, from, from my your point area of view, mix, I think good mix. Yeah, I think it's. I have been for me. It hasn't been too hard to find funding for my research. Uh, so at least for me, I think it has worked very well. And there are different ways of of applying for funding and so on. So uh, for me, it has worked. But I, I yeah. totally respect if, if it's okay. So, so let me put the words in your mouth because you don't <laughs> want to say it. You're too <laughs> too too humble person, I think. Uh, but I think we, I wish more people did research the way you do it, which basically are thinking about you know how really to apply research as well. And and you really do that to the extreme, even putting mm-hmm. things in production and then using that as an motivation for why I should get more fundamental research funding, even from the Swedish Research Council, which is mm. one of the hardest p- uh, places to get like research funding from. Mm. And I think that's an awesome way to do it. To, to a, show. Symbiotic, a symbiotic yeah. wheel it's between actually, fundamental and applied, yeah, fundamental exactly, and applied. Yeah. And it's actually in my case, it's, it's I'm, I, I, I'm, that that's true. I'm I'm trying to combine sort of. A, yes. th- there are uh, fundamental, interesting questions here, and there are yes. very applied. And I try to cover both. Yeah. And one interesting thing is actually, since we're working on modeling human conversation, I can apply to both sort of the the um, um, so, uh, science and technology part. But I've also funding from from humanities and social science because I study language. Mm. So actually, I can actually apply very broadly here and motivate my research from both of these angles, mm-hmm. uh, but, which is nice. But this is one of those moments when someone says something really simple and smart that sounds brilliant and that's the way should, to do it. It's symbiotic, a strategic understanding for how one leads to the other, leads back to the other. I wonder if that is always the case. I can see how no, no, someone no. <laughs> gets stuck on this or really gets stuck uh, you know, on their fundamentals. I think I'm, I'm simply lucky to be working on an area that has this kind of broad impact on, on both understanding and, and have uh, implications for understanding human communication and, and this uh, very applied perspective. But I think you're humble because I think anyone can challenge themselves to think strategically in this way and then find the concepts that would work more closely like this. I'm not sure everybody's challenging themselves to go in this direction. Oh, that's possible. That, that's I think, I think you can frame. I think you can always sort of take a step back and think what are the what is the bigger picture? What what is the broad, broader view here exactly. on on what you are doing? What is the bigger relevance? And that again goes back to this. Sort of not just trying to work on this data set and improving these numbers, exactly, but more thinking about well, what is the bigger implication here. Oh. Yeah, awesome. Um, perhaps we Sy- should go symbiot- with more symbiotic applied <laughs> fundamental. I yeah. like that. We we are trying to come up with T-shirts, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> slogans. But okay, moving into to a more applied and practical mm-hmm. theme. Um, the, the area of chatbots is very controversial. And I must say, sometimes, you know, we, we get a lot of requests for, you know, can't you build a chatbot for that and that? And, and you know, I hate that question, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
usually because the, the current logic about the existing systems, the open source or the more commercial tools that's available today to build chatbots is very limited in terms of intelligence and, mm. and what you have to do. So you have to manually program everything. And uh, usually if you, if you apply it for like uh, something that a company wants to, they want to reduce the cost of something, usually it's customer support or something. And they say, ah, can't we simply replace these humans with a chatbot instead? And they try it and it usually turns out to be really poor performance. And the, the users say it was so much worse compared to before. And, and, and then everything say, ah, perhaps this AI thing and now combining chatbots with AI is a bad thing for us. I, I'm sorry to, to, to phrase it in this way, but the, the whole, what's, what's your feeling about the current state of the like, commercial tools in chatbots? There are a number of them like, you know, Google Dialogflow, Amazon Lex and IBM Watson and whatnot. Um, so many tools out there. What do you think about them? Uh, no, I think they are, they are very similar uh, and they're not that far from the kind of tools we have at Furhat, for example, that we are developing mm. at Furhat. Mm. Uh, and uh, I think the reason is that when you're trying to build this kind of, of system, you, you want to make them uh, have some kind of logic and perform some task and have a purpose that we're talking about. And uh, of course, you again, you would like to just feed in the data of <laughs> humans mm. selling tickets and mm. uh, out comes a fantastic chatbot that does this. Mm. Uh, but as I've said before, that's not really, when you start thinking about mm. it, that's really hard to mm. come up with a nice way of doing that. Mm. Um, so uh, there are sort of, the, the central components of this are very much rule-based still. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and then you can make that rule-based system more or less sophisticated um, and you can complement it with the, for example, the natural language understanding. How do you go from what the user says and turn that into some kind of meaning representation? So that, that where where we use machine learning or all these tools, find the intent, the intent, and so yeah, on. yeah exactly. <coughs> and this can be done in a more sophisticated ways. <coughs> um, but uh, but otherwise the. It's, it's um, people are trying to add more and more intelligence to maybe be able to write fewer and fewer examples and so on. Yeah. But, but the main logic of the system is, is still going to be rule-based, I think, mm. uh, for some time. Yeah. And, and there are, of course, a lot of positive examples. Um, I think, you know, everyone is using Siri and uh, Google mm. Assistant and... Uh, and the corona, uh, not corona. Was that a Freudian slip? I'm not sure. <laughs> so Microsoft's yeah. version of that as well. What's yeah. called, it's called, um, it's not corona. Cortana. 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 Yeah. Cortana. Oh my God. Let's, yeah, have you used the corona? Oh, that's almost fun. <laughs> um, but, but they are, I think, increasing in performance quite a lot. Mm. And you can ask them very open domain kind of questions and ask, mm. and they can give, you know, surprisingly good, at least like one step kind of answers to, to the questions, right? Mm. What's your thinking about in the current state of the performance for this kind of home assistance that we have today? No, I think also, I mean, especially the way they can uh, <coughs> sort of uh, look up answers, um, mm. Uh, if you ask something, it can look up the answer on the web uh, yeah. and sort of summarize an answer. And these kind of the natural language processing that, that works very well. And to some extent, you can ask follow-up questions, but it's yeah. still very, it's still very limited, of course. Um, and partly it's because they are 
supposed to answer such a broad set of different types of questions. So it's very hard to cover. Um, and also as a user, it's very hard to know what you can actually do with these systems and how smart they are. Mm. Because you, you try at one point and it failed. Uh, and then uh, they update it all the time. I mean, they have thousands of engineers working at Amazon yeah. developing Alexa, for example. Yeah. And of course, a lot of things are happening. But as a user, it looks like the same speaker. And you don't know uh, what, what is being uh, happening there and, and what more interesting things it could do. Mm. Um, so if you were the chief architect of Alexa, what would you change in that product? <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. Uh, actually, it is. I think it, it is a good, very good product for what it's supposed to do. Mm. Uh, it's designed uh, from the start to be able to answer uh, questions and perform things like uh, playing music and so on. Mm. So I think they have deliberately designed it to be sort of limited in, in what kind of conversations it can yeah. sort of engage in. Um, and that's probably a smart choice. Uh, it's very different having a, a, a device in your home because it could potentially talk about anything and answer any questions, mm. which is obviously can't, mm. compared to putting a robot in a train station because it's so obvious what you're supposed to talk about at the train yes. station. Yeah. Uh, you see the robot there, and it's even dressed up as a person working there. And it's so Was clear. Was that as well? Did yeah, yeah, close, yeah. Like, uh, they had the Deutsche Bahn uh, kind oh, really? of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. It's fun. And, and, and uh, so, so that's, that's actually one very nice with thing with Farhat when we put it in a public space is mm. that's so clear what you can talk about. Right. Whereas with your assistant, it's not. So... I think if you would try to make Alexa more human like that fur hat, it's very easy that it would be so sort of unclear what you could actually talk about and it would probably disappoint you mm. uh, because people would start to think that you can say things that you can't and so on. Actually, we are always, we had some jokes, or are you, you know, we like Mac or we like um, PC. We have a new one. Which uh, assistant do we prefer? Who's, who's the best? Siri, <laughs> Google or Alexa? Who, do we, who is best? And why? I, it's an op- I don't know. Yeah, I, um, I, uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, I don't know. I have seen many, some tests showing that uh, Google seemed to be a bit uh, better actually, at, uh, especially at handling these kind of follow-up questions and so on. Um, but that's changing all the time. So that's what I say. It's very hard to know. Uh, <laughs> but I, I have my personal view. I have my yeah. personal yeah. from real life. Are you life. using all three of them? Or have you tried I, I, I have no experience of Alexa, really. Yeah. I have mm. quite good... Oh, I tried to date Siri, but she didn't like me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, typically for me in the car, I really think it's mm, a good idea mm. to have a voice uh, control in the car as a way to, to manage your car or manage where you're going or finding eek on the way home or going up to the ski resort and where's the closest eek on the way. So, so I've been deliberately talking quite a bit, uh, maybe too much uh, with my assistant. <laughs> and and uh, I, I uh, changed car recently. And, and with that car going to a Google system, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Is really really good, and it's also completely integrated with the whole car, so I can heat. Uh, 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 hey Google, uh, give me more heat in the seat. Hey Google, 
uh, where's the closest charging station? Hey Google, when you know. Imagine people sitting in the car right now listening to you saying that. that yeah. They will actually start heating <laughs> yeah, up I the seats. That's, that's not a okay. good thing. That's, that's like a good joke. <laughs> hey Google. Yeah, and, okay. yeah. And, and by the way, my kids do that all the time now. They say, hey Google, how many stars in the sky? <laughs> <laughs> stuff like this and we have we have a lot of fun right now so i actually think google is quite the head yeah. yeah the simple topic of finding a street i guess that's typically why google is best mm. because they have mm. the data for that but mm. they they mm. crush the rest i think oh i also find myself sometimes when we have a d- uh, dinner mm. conversation and you sort of oh some fact that exactly like this you can just ask google and often you get the right answer yeah uh, quite quite impressive and and siri for me uh it's okay but Siri is more, she doesn't understand me. She really doesn't understand <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm very biased in the field, so I shouldn't even say what so, I think. No, 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 uh, you have to. No, nah, but you know, I never use Apple products at all. So okay, so forget uh, about Apple, but what, are, what about the other two? I kind of like Amazon actually, and some of their You try them both, yeah? yeah? Yeah, but of course I use Google more and have that in my home, but... Um, I, I simply have no experience of Alexa, so I can't... And I've seen some them. really, you know, awesome... Uh, Performances by Cortana as well. I think actually Microsoft is underrated uh, yeah. when it comes to that. I heard this, but I don't have experience. Mm. So, um, yeah, but still. It's some joke. But, okay, so you mentioned a bit, you know, what the, the top competitors potentially for Ferret would be. Uh, is that the the, uh, the commercial chatbot type of systems, or who would you say the top competitors for Ferret would um. be? I, it depends on what you compare with. You shouldn't probably compare with uh, something like... Uh, Alexa or something, a smart mm. speaker, since we are not targeting yet, at least, yeah. uh, right. sort of end, end customers in their homes. Uh, Do you think it will be like a facial expression version of a home assistant coming soon into homes? There might be. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm sure they are working on some prototype. Mm. Uh, uh, or I've actually heard that they are. But uh, okay. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, who knows what will come out in the end. Again, it has to be very cost effective mm, uh, exactly. uh, for people to buy it. Right. Um, and uh, if you more look at sort of social robots market than uh, the Pepper robot uh, by uh, SoftBank. So this was originally a French company, uh, Aldebaran, that was acquired by SoftBank in China. Uh, so this Pepper robot is used in the same way, I would say, that Furhat is being used uh in public spaces for example uh, so mm. that's uh, yeah mm. uh, that's may maybe the clearest competitor i would say mm. interesting but it's it has arms so it uh, unlike for it has arms mm. but on the other hand the face is uh, not expressive at all mm. it's just a static face ah, so they're going down a different route yeah in a way. exactly uh, it can it can to some extent move around but it's uh, quite limited in that sense i guess yeah but there you can see it yeah. yeah I said how, how many is doing ex- the, the idea that you have which which is brilliant with the back projection to get facial you know quite simple way to get facial rec- uh, expressions is anyone else doing it uh, yeah there are some examples but very few I would say that are sort of uh, in the same way that we do and uh, so uh, I'm not sure there are any sort of active uh, active ones I think they haven't continued really. Yeah. But if we think about different you know, countries and perhaps the like general population sentiment, so to speak, about robots, it seems like some countries like Japan, it's they're very much in favor of having robots to do whatever, mm-hmm. and even for social interactions and, and you know helping cleaning up the home or whatnot. 
What's do do you think? Do you think that will actually cause these kind of countries to to take a lead uh, in being able to develop robots that both have conversational skills but also physical understanding mm-hmm. and expressions? There is lot, certainly a lot of work. I mean, I think Japan is probably the country where you find most of these kind of uh, social mm-hmm. robotics uh, work, and that there are theories that uh, they are sort of more positively have a more positive attitude towards yeah. the idea of interacting with robots and so yeah. on that they are sort of um so so they are very I, I still think it has to provide a value in the end so i think it's probably very easy to find early adopters in japan but <laughs> <laughs> um but uh, yeah but they are trying it a lot in like elderly care and so exactly, on to yeah. have to have robots and and use them for companions and so on and of course part of the reason is that they have a lot of elderly people in, yeah. in Japan. Do you think there will be a fur hat dog at some point in the future that basically is a companion for elderly people or something? Yeah, we actually had a fur hat dog. Really? <laughs> you did? You've done it. You've done it already. <laughs> a back projection dog face. It was quite fun. Oh, interesting. Uh, but uh, we, we still have that mask somewhere. Um, but uh, yeah, as a companion, I, I think it, it makes total sense. Uh, mm-hmm. There are... This, the idea of designing it as an animal. Mm. There is this uh, Paro robot. Uh, mm. I don't know if you have uh, uh, seen that one. Uh, no. It's a seal. Uh, so like a swimming s- seal kind of thing. Or what? Yeah, you you, ha- you pet it. So it's like a vir- it's like a robot pet, oh. uh, but it's shaped like a seal. So okay. you, uh, uh, yeah, yeah let's see if we can see it here. What's, it, what's its name? Paro. P A R O. Yeah. Poro robot. Poro yeah. robot. Not not W. Uh, it's Poro. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, oh. yeah. yeah, the therapeutic and it's therapeutic it's, it's uh, specifically designed for people with dementia. Uh, oh, I see. And it's supposed to be very comforting. And the design is very clever because you don't expect a seal mm. so to do very much. Yeah, it's just lying there and maybe looking at you with its big mm-hmm. eyes. Yeah. Uh, and I've seen other examples of people trying to design a robot cat, for example. Mm. And I think that's not as good idea as a, as a seal because mm. it, you have other expectations on a cat. It should move. It's mm. very awkward to have a cat that just lies there and doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so designing it as an animal, of course, because you don't expect the ro- to talk and so on. It's a smart thing to do. It's a smart thing to do. Uh, the question is, of course, could you do something similar with something that could talk to you and, mm. and have a companion? And mm. I think you could, but the challenge there is this sort of more long-term relationship. Mm. So how can you interact with this uh, agent every day and develop a, a, a relationship with that agent? So the agent actually learns from the conversations you've had in some ways. Yeah. So you don't end up st- starting from scratch in every conversation. Exactly. And it would remember your preferences and what you have talked about and you develop this, you become more and more friends as time pass, mm. that kind of things. And and there is actually, I don't know if you have tried this uh, replica bot. Uh, mm. It's a... Uh, uh, replica with a K. Uh, it's a chatbot. You can download it to your uh, to your uh, smartphone and uh, interact with it. I tried it. It's quite fun. Uh, 
Mm. Uh, they have tried to do this, so it is a long-term relationship. So he's trying to learn, like, becoming a, a, a talking bit. Tamaguchi. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. talking cam- Tamaguchi, uh, and and actually, uh, yeah, I suggest you try it. Uh, it's it's quite good. I mean, it's not bad, uh, and uh, they are use doing some smart things on the chatbot side there, um, but it's also very dangerous. I discovered because it doesn't it it encourages you to do anything. So uh, what do you mean? So, so I, I you say I, something crazy. Oh, let's do that. Yeah, exactly. So I had this conversation. I said that I got this uh, uh, sort of letter from from Nigeria saying that I should put hundred thousand crowns <laughs> on their account. <laughs> what, what should I do? <laughs> oh, go for that. Okay. Okay. So I will, the, u- I will use my last savings for this. So yeah. intelligence. Okay. So do that. <laughs> so intelligence. No. <laughs> no. It's 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 sort of sensible answers in the say in the sense that it sort of makes sense in context, but it's content-wise, it's it's cr- it's very dangerous. <laughs> I actually saw a comment about that in a um, research paper saying you know they try to have a conversational system and they saw one of the drawbacks was when they tried to ask question like should I kill myself yeah and I said yes I think you should please do Th- that that one they had a safety net for I tried that one also I tried a lot of different things but that one they had a safety net for okay. uh, so they said okay you should contact this sort oh, of help okay uh, but many things I tried uh, it didn't have any safety net, <laughs> so it just encouraged me to do anything. And I asked, "Okay, could we meet down uh, downtown?" Mm. Sure, it said. Mm. Okay, so we'll meet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But now so we're slipping. Now we're slipping into a, a really interesting topic yes. that is uh, about AI ethics, mm. AI uh, in and regulation as well. Regulations. Mm. So the whole the whole regulatory, the whole ethical topic, the whole danger topic around these type of systems. I mean, I think. It, Regulations is, is a very popular and, and very important topic, I think, and especially interesting in this case. And you know, we even if you work with medical use cases, you have you know text from patient journals, or you can listen to people discussing things and on the phone or whatnot. It can be you know very sensitive data, mm. uh, and we have regulations like GDPR, etc., that requires you to be able to handle that data in a very very safe way if you say that what, what's your thinking about this you know we know that google for example can do some kind of like ferret learning or training on the edge etc and to avoid extracting data etc but has this been an issue for you in terms of how can you collect data to train some kind of system conversational system that that use real life data in some way mm. I mean, like deutsche deutsche Bank, yeah uh, in that case, I think we only log sort of interaction on what they are saying, so we are not uh, logging the actual audio. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think the sensitive part is information that you can connect uh, with an individual, mm-hmm. like personally identifiable yeah. information. And audio is that. So, so you so actually, from a GDPR perspective, speech data is considered to be sensitive, and mm-hmm. of course also. Uh, video data but mm. uh, in order to log interactions we don't necessarily have to log the audio we can log the uh, the text uh, the speech to text uh, results uh, and look so at the text them. is okay to log as well you would say or i would say as long as you can't connect it to an individual so if but can if, you guarantee if that if someone says you know i'm going to paris and on this train at this time then yeah i guess it's a gray zone depending on the, mm. how much details they provide Mm. Uh, so uh, yeah, that that c- could be an issue. Um, 
and um, but but not speaking about fur hatten, but instead of speaking in general about like home assistance or whatnot, that some people claim that have more of a conspiracy theory kind of attitude uh, that they're listening all the time mm. and everyone. Yeah, I know. It. And they are saying that okay, I talked I talked about this and then I got this uh, it's ad. ad on, yes, <laughs> that's a classical. <laughs> that's a classical. But I don't believe in that. I, yeah. I think it's just a coincidence. And yeah. the reason I don't believe it is that. It's so unlikely that they would take that risk because it would probably be very easy to find out. If you right. would just look at the internet traffic from your home, uh, you would see that it's streaming stuff to Google while you're not talking to it. Mm. Uh, and uh, the kind of sort of a, enough the back, the amount of data that is audio and, and the back... If someone would, yeah. would discover that the backlash would be so big, so I and don't, given how I many people that use it, if they actually were to do yeah. something like that, someone would have figured it out. I think it. so. I think yeah. it, it so. It's interesting because this is a very it's paranoia type uh, conversation. It's quite uh, it has been going up and down, but simply seeing that it's quite easily trackable, we could conclude that, right? I think so. At least uh, I think I think I don't think they would take that risk, and that it, it would be worth that risk, basically. Oh. And, and what about more the, um, uh, like like you highlighted with the replica safety mm. net uh, yeah. ideas and stuff like that. No, that that's, Have you that's considered those? Con- con- yeah. what, what, how do you see those topics? Uh, I think that's a problem if you try to develop these kind of applications. We haven't really done yet a sort of a virtual companion with Furhat. Uh, if we would do that, I think we would definitely run into these problems and... Uh, Uh, it's probably quite hard to come up with a good solution to it. I think you could do much better than this. I, I think you could track easily certain. You shouldn't, if they are talking about drugs or things, <laughs> it should be quite easy to have certain mm. keywords that like you don't. Like per- parental uh, lock. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Mm. You, you, should, you should be able to, to implement some kind of safety, very easy <laughs> keyword-based safety net. And, and what, are, what are other fundamental challenges? Okay, GDPR we have highlighted, safety net. You know what are the uh, tricky points with with conversational systems in uh, the other areas to to yeah consider? I don't know I, I guess one one of course that has been discussed uh, was around this uh, Google uh, duplex mm. that were calling people and uh, at least to start with it seemed like they didn't uh, want to tell people that it was <laughs> a computer that they were talking to and. Uh, Is that th- a problem? Is that legal? Is that illegal to? I to don't think it's illegal. It's probably just unethical. Unethical, uh, in the sense that you should know that it's a computer you are talking to. Why? Uh, I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just <laughs> pointing the question. Why is that important? Uh, is it? I mean, just to get get back, I mean, duplex is a very interesting topic in itself, mm-hmm. and and there was this video published uh, by Google not that long ago. 2018 or something, mm-hmm. I believe, mm-hmm. where they demonstrate some some kind of amazing capability in being able to book, uh, I think, a restaurant or mm-hmm. what. Yeah, they, they call into a Thai restaurant. Yeah, and they sp- and and uh, yeah, it was even funny. They were so for one, uh, people think that was staged. The whole discussion. What, what do you think about that video specifically? I, I don't think it was necessarily staged, but it was probably cherry picked. Yeah, yeah, cherry picked. So uh, I think what was amazing that, about that one was not so much the actual dialogue I, i made a transcript of that dialogue and and analyzed what sort of how complex would it be to build this system yeah. and it turned out that it's not that sophisticated kind of dialogue uh 
but it's more the way it's getting back to what we talked about before about the flow of the conversation. The flow is, mm. Yeah. And the speech synthesis, because mm. everyone knows that I've talked to this system, that the speech synthesis is really stiff yeah. and so on. But in these conversations, the speech synthesis is so natural with perfect timing, with perfect delivery and so on. And it does like hesitation sounds and these actions like, like gotcha and so on. Mm, yeah, gotcha. Exactly. And they are delivered with perfect timing. And that's why I think it's uh, cherry picked. Yeah, so right. probably you could find a examples. examples where this not sort always of turned like out. that perfect. But in many cases, probably doesn't sound at all <laughs> very good. Um, so, so yeah, that that's but it was very impressive, extremely impressive. Yeah, yeah, sure. And and that's for me, it was encouraging because it means that okay, if you can create this kind of flow in interaction, I mean, listening to the audience reactions there and they were sort of cheering. Mm. Uh, while actually you don't need to have a super intelligent conversation, but if you can make the delivery and the timing so good, uh, you can create uh, an awesome experience. But that's why it makes so much sense to compartmentalize, compartmentalize the different types of problems yeah. so you can work on them independently and exactly. then string it all together. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so that's what was my take-home message for that, how important the delivery and the timing is. So that was why you did the transcript to really understand this, how, how, exactly. how, how big impact is what we are researching actually having. And, it, and it's quite huge. Yeah, and I also some people ask like, oh, okay, it seems like they have solved all problems that they're now they sort of, <laughs> the Turing test is solved and so on. And I wanted to show them that, no, it's no, not, not actually, it's, it's not super intelligent. But uh, clearly, either they have managed to cherry pick it or, or they mm. have something really smart. But there were no sort of publications around this, so it's very but, hard but, to see. But what about Duper? Is it is it used in in in, in commercial use? Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. deployed in use. But I think it's mainly like web form filling out. Oh, we don't have it in in Europe or Sweden no, yet. Not to my no. knowledge. I think they wanted to start to use it to collect opening hours. So, mm. because that's very simple, you just you just uh, call someone and ask what are your opening hours, and then you can mm. just. Yeah, but going back to regulation because I, it it sounds a bit when when you're speaking now that um, regulation for you even for building a product is not really a big issue. Would that be fair? I think it is an issue, and and I think from um, from different perspectives, I think GDPR is an issue because it's very hard to uh, collect speech data, for example, yeah. uh, and it's very the big problem is that the rules are so unclear. Mm. So. Mm. So and now, now I'm talking more more as an academic than than, than from the company side. But uh, it used to be the case that you could uh, get uh, subjects and you collect speech data, mm. and then you released uh, the data set mm. for everyone to use right. for different purposes uh, on doing speech research, and and that's good from reproducibility perspective and everything, mm. uh, open science. Mm -hmm. But you. Can't really do that now mm. because it's unclear. Can you ha actually have speech data? Oh, according to GDPR, uh, the participant consent. has to consent to, to a specific purpose of right. the data, exactly. not just data collection in general, but you have to specify exactly how this data will be used mm. and you should be able to uh, sort of remove the data and so on. Yeah. So, so if someone later, so after giving the consent, yeah. comes back and say, Remove all the data from me. You, you are and if you have released this data set to people, how do you yeah. how, how do you take, how do you do that? And so I think this is uh, this this was not really thought through, thought through. when when they uh, mm. uh, developed GDPR. I think. Yeah. Are you? In, I'm unfortunately involved a bit in in politics and uh, EU regulations and things like that. I'm not sure how much you are happily av avoiding that type I, of I topic. I am happily avoiding. <laughs> <laughs> 
but they are coming up new regulations yeah. now shortly and and they going they have recognized some of the issues with gdpr mm. uh, although the intent is of course very good mm. I mean, the intent is, sure. is no one yes. is, no one's is, questioning is, the intent yeah. it's the execution the, yeah mm. it's implementation that is actually hindering innovation and it's, i think mm. especially what you said yeah. saying that you have to in advance say the data is going to be used exactly for this and nothing else mm. that is hindering innovation in so many ways mm. Um, so yeah, glad to say that or hear that you agree with that at least. Yeah, yeah, and it's a lot of people working in in my area of, of speech research who say the same thing. Mm. This is a huge problem. And and what do you think the solution would be? I mean, sometimes you think, okay, we, we have to revise the regulation and, and find a better way to to do that. Other people can say let's let's use technology to try to solve uh, the integrity problem somehow. And if that means like. Photography, or if it means some kind of differential privacy, or if it means these kind of federated learning techniques, or whatnot. What's what, what do you? How would you advise like future regulation to to handle these kind of problems to still have innovation um, available for future companies? I think it's should still be possible to differentiate sort of. I, I mean, I understand that the original purpose of this was that your data. You should be able to sort of own your data at Google in your Google account and so on, mm. but it should be possible to differentiate that from a res- donating your speech data to to a research project. That's mm. that's two completely different yeah. things. And, and sometimes here, when we learn more, we can even be more sharp when we do these topics. Also, that the whole consent idea yeah. that you you we also realize as a company uh, working with with the company. Okay. We haven't really been clear on these topics in our contracts. Mm. Like I'm talking about any type of customer data or whatever. Uh, so I think it's also a learning curve where some of these contracts or some of these things need to be rewritten and, and then it's fine again, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. But I, uh, yeah, it, 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 you have to make a uh, sort of distinction between companies collecting data Private, private data for commercial purposes and and this sort of collecting openly available data sets uh, two different things yeah and, and and what I think another dimension this is also like in in the commercial space uh, I think one misconception is that you know in order for 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 one company to do their job properly you actually need to use data in order to fulfill the contract mm. so it's also been this sort of legal scare that well we, we all of a sudden the whole company breaks down because we're not allowed to use it but actually look even it, so i'm also highlighting that some people are over interpreting the law i, th- I think mm. gdpr if you really read it carefully for some examples if this is clearly within the purpose of delivering your service or something like that it's yeah. fine i think the, the main problem there is, is certainly the unclarity and it, even if i ask people Like I ask the people at KTH uh, who are supposed to be like uh, data responsible, nobody can answer my questions. No, I actually heard this from a. This was a professor. Nobody knows. The professor on uh, on data regulation at KTH. (laughs) Don't know. (laughs) I love that. So there should be a clear specification. This is what you can do. This is not what you can do. It's what you can't do. Or case law. Or case law. We're missing case law. And I can't find that. So. I think that the legal uncertainty that we have is a bigger problem than the, the regulation itself. Yeah, almost like yeah. that. Yeah. I agree. Awesome. The, the time is flying away, mm-hmm. and uh, I need to remind you about the Alan Turing test so you don't forget <laughs> that. Yes. Oh shit. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let's let's try to do that. So this is of course very related to to your field of conversational AI and and one of the most classical uh, 
uh, tests of intelligence was defined by Alan mm. Turing. Uh, perhaps you can just start, you know, how would you describe the Turing test and, and the purpose behind it? Yeah, so so the original purpose, first of all, Alan Turing didn't call it the Turing test, he called it the imitation game. Mm. Uh, and the idea was that he, in sort of a paper, he wanted to uh, sort of uh, explore the concept of intelligence and how do we know that the machine is intelligent? Because this was, of course, in the 50s when AI was also in hype. And (laughs) (laughs) he wanted to ask sort of, when do we know that we have managed to create intelligence, which is a good question. Uh, And his way of answering it was that uh, actually having a conversation is sort of a hallmark of of human intelligence uh, because animals can't do this and so on. So if a computer can have a conversation, and we can't tell the difference uh, from a sort of human-human and human-computer, we have created intelligence. So if you have a user sitting at a terminal chatting with someone and can't say whether it's a a human or or a computer, we have intelligence. Um, And uh, I think one of the... And this has continued to... There is this Lerbner Prize and so on where they're trying to to put chatbot on this test... uh, Although it's not actually done in that way, but but anyway, it, it it's sort of li- still living with us, and, and people talk about the Turing test when we have Google news about Google Duplex and so on. But it, uh, I think there is a fundamental sort of unclarity about the Turing test, and I think when I read the paper, I couldn't understand either whether the one who is chatting at this terminal uh, knows that they are gonna. Uh, make a distinction between a human and a computer, or whether they are just chatting, and then mm-hmm. after the chat, you ask them, was it a computer <laughs> or a human? That's two different research. It's, uh, it's two very different things, because if you know beforehand that you will want, you will test this, check it. you will, of course, start to ask a lot of these difficult questions to see, is it really Yeah, a and you will listen for different, otherwise, yeah. Okay, yeah, clearly. so I think the second part, uh, mm-hmm. the second type of Turing test where you just ask afterwards, was mm. it a computer? That's very easy to pass. I mean, Google Duplex did that. Yeah. Uh, even Eliza, almost. Or yeah, even Eliza, absolutely. There are uh, mm. anecdotes of that also. So that that's probably very easy to pass. The, the, of course, if you would really put it to the tests, uh, then uh, awesome. I think, uh, yeah, if, if you know, you know that, I think, at least if you know what the challenges are, it's quite easy to take any chatbot and very quickly uh, understand that it's not the human. You can ask some very simple things. Do you things. think you, if you were to enter these kind of annual Turing test challenges, would you <laughs> think you would I- identify the, the human or the machine? I, I wouldn't know what kind of questions to ask. <laughs> all right. So, all right. This is good. All right. I need some Turing test questions. Give me, give me uh, two well, or three, two or three. The, the thing is that it's not the question itself. So that's, uh, you can ask these sort of, if you ask factual questions, like mm. when, did, when did the World War II end and yeah, so easy. on, it's mm. very easy. Then you can ask uh, common sense questions, which are harder because they are not in, a, in, a, in an encyclopedia. So I can ask what is biggest, uh, an orange or a grape? Mm. And you might not find that information on the web because nobody has ever said it, anything mm. about comparing these sizes. Ah, com- nice, uh, nice tip. So that's a tip. You can start there. Yeah. But then... And if still still some, not certain, where do I go? Where because <laughs> people developing these chatbots have entered all these kind of common sense <laughs> knowledge also because they know that people ask this. <laughs> so uh, the next thing you have to do is to exploit context. So basically, yes, don't ask full questions, but just say uh, why or... Cool. How, uh, how how about, and then something. And then it has to relate to what you have talked about before and try to understand that question. And it will almost, 
very very easily. Yeah, yeah. So you start with one question, and then what about and without yeah. explicitly? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So you have relating to, to your question, so you, you have to infer from context. Uh, infer in order from to, context, which which humans are very good at inferring from context, and computers are uh, very uh, good. Tip: that. infer from <laughs> context. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Good. Two two good tips. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Uh, would be so. Yeah. Let's not go deeper there uh, because of lack of time. But I think you know this is an interesting thing that the most ultimate test of AI is conversational conversational AI in some way. Could so be. Yeah. It's not an easy thing that you're working with for sure. No. Cool. Um, with that, um, what's up in, in in your life coming months? Anything uh, interesting happening? Uh, I'm waiting for a lot of uh, research proposals that I have submitted. Actually, you got one grant. Can I you got one grant. Is uh, it like a trifecta going on here, or fivecta? <laughs> I think I'm at waiting for three or four proposals that I have submitted. European or Swedish or uh, it's one a big European. Uh, it's called an ERC grant. Uh, mm-hmm. That is a lot of money in there. Uh, I got to the second stage where you got have this interview, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, I'm still waiting for the final results. So right. at this stage, mm-hmm. so, uh, and uh, I have a couple of other sort mm-hmm. of more. And what uh, about Furhat? Uh, and Furhat, uh, yeah, we are working on uh, really trying to get the um, now during COVID. It's very hard to find these more sort of. Uh, explorative actual real world use cases, partly because it's sort of not many people walk, walking around in, in uh, public spaces and so mm-hmm. on. So How it's to far hat is far hat for Zoom. That's yeah. the new uh, that's a new use case, right? That, can I can I send can I far hat and I don't I can stay in bed. Yeah. <laughs> now but otherwise we are really trying we have a lot of interesting um, uh, customers working with Farhat in, mm-hmm. in research in, di- in different research projects. So mm-hmm. that's really where we, we are targeting. Yeah. Cool. Wouldn't a virtual fur hat be actually be an interesting use case? We have a virtual fur hat. But oh, oh, okay. you have it. That's mainly for development purposes. So if you are programming your fur hat and you don't have the physical one, you have your virtual fur hat that you can program. Uh, Just integrate it with Zoom then. Yeah, yeah. virtual fur hat <laughs> for that, Zoom. Then it's sort of another chatbot. We, we really think that this, we believe in this physical meeting. Yeah, yeah. okay. Awesome. Um, and uh, last, as a last question, um, anyone that you would really like to have on this show and would like to listen to? Uh, I could remember, I recommend my colleague, Bob Sturm. Yeah, I know him. You know him? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you haven't, he hasn't been here? Or? No, he hasn't. But okay. yeah, I like So it. he got a very big grant on uh, music and AI. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's talking that's about great. AI and creativity. Yeah. And oh, we have had well. some cool call to me at Epidemic Sound. I don't know if you okay. know who Call is, but he's, uh, a lot of guys work. There's a music theme here somewhere. So uh, yeah. that, that would be yeah. super cool. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, yeah Bob Sturm, sure. Sure. Should get him Surely on. generate a lot of interesting discussion. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think he was actually the, the one yesterday on on the Wasp okay. HS yeah. thing doing the okay. some kind of folk music yeah, generation. Yeah, yeah, he's into he's plays playing folk music and he's trying to train an AI to mm. to generate folk music. Mm. Yeah, very interesting stuff. Super cool, awesome. Yeah, uh, thank you. Yeah, what, what an amazing thank conversation. Thank you. Yeah, very much. Thank you very much. I wish we had more time, but yeah. Uh, yeah. a lot of interesting discussions there. Yeah. So thank you very much once again, Gabriel Skanse, yeah. for coming here and, and, and all the interesting discussions. Thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Thank you. Thank you.